This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. You know, uh, many years ago, the Green Bay Packer coach Vince Lombardi brought his team together. They had had a very lackluster performance, and he was disturbed about that, so he called a team meeting, and he announced to them that they were going to return to the basics. And he pulled out a football. This is a poor representative of a football, but it's something like this. He pulled out a football, and he said, gentlemen, we're going back to the basics, and this is a football. Now, that was to a group of professionals, and he wanted them to think about this ball. And he wanted them to understand the way the game was played, to go back to the very core nature of how it's played. He wanted them to feel it. But that was a return to the basics. And I want you to know, as you take your Bible and look to 1 Peter, and I want you to turn there for just a moment, because we're going to look at this text. It's really a return to the basics. You can almost hear Peter say as you read through these verses, and I've thought about this as I've looked through these verses, it's almost like as you read through these verses, you can hear him say, gentlemen, this, referring to these three verses we're going to look at, this is life. This is the core. This is the essence of what it's all about. You know, we have this series. You notice on your outline it says, Fleshing Out Your Faith. We're going to talk about all kinds of issues in the next few weeks in First Peter of fleshing out your faith. But now listen, before we go rushing off into all those things, because we like to talk about our marriages and our suffering, you know, and our issues and our challenges and all that. But before you go rushing off into all that, we need to talk about something that's real basic, that's right here at the very beginning. And that's life. Where life comes from. We don't talk about those and really get a sense of what that really means. Before we go fleshing out our faith, let's kind of come back for a moment and just say, let's just talk about faith. Because you've got to have faith before you can deal with all those other things and flesh it out. And that's really what he's saying. He's saying, gentlemen, listen to me. This is life here in these verses. And you have to believe it. You have to understand it. And you have to feel it and embrace it if it's ever going to do anything for you. If you really know how to play the game, you'll start with the basic core called life. Now, I want you to listen up this morning, and I particularly want you to listen up as we begin this message, because at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you, some of you, who are in the audience, to get up from where you're seated and come down and meet me and receive that life. And I want to ask others of you to get up who have that life, but for whatever reason have drifted away from it, have chosen to get in line for other things, to come back to it this morning. And I'm going to ask you to do that publicly because Jesus believed in public commitments and I believe in public commitments because there's something about getting up in front of people that says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I think this is the core of life. And I want to make that commitment. There's something about getting up out of your chair in front of your friends and your family, something about that that moves you from a place of deliberation to decision. And we know that, don't we? From indecisiveness to decisiveness. Because I want you to know, until you get to the very core 
of where life is and entrust Christ to that, you'll not have that life. Your speech will be always filled about the problems in your marriage and the suffering you're going through and the challenges you're having and what new opportunities. But it won't get to the life. You've got to start with the basics. And that's where Peter starts. And that's where we're going to start this morning. Now, before we read Peter's words, I want to start with a question that will help set this text up. And that question is this. What makes for a vibrant life? What makes for a life that's happy? What makes for a life that's meaningful? You know, there's a lot of studies that are going on that, uh, going on about that subject today in our society. I don't know if you saw ABC uh, not too many weeks back where there was the special that John Stossel, the ABC correspondent, uh, did on what makes people happy. He's asking that question because that's an obsession in America today. What makes people happy? And rather than just giving his opinion or interviewing people, he went to a number of research centers that are currently researching that subject, polled their data, and he found some very remarkable similarities between all the studies. And I want to start by giving you the results of that study. First of all, what is it that they found don't make people happy? What are the things that don't make people happy? They listed five in the program. I want to give them to you. The first was this. Possessions don't make people happy. As much as we want to believe that having the next new thing makes us happy, the research says that the more people have, the further down many times they fall on the happiness scale. They go below the median. They fall below that. Possessions are not a guarantee of happiness. Secondly, wealth, they found, is not a guarantee of happiness. In fact, featured on the Stossel program is where they went out and they collected the last five years or more of lottery winners around the United States. And they got them together and they interviewed them right there on television. It was so fascinating. But here's what was most fascinating. Every one of the lotto winners, you know, you always want to be a lottery winner, don't you? You know, you fill out the little magazine thing hoping they're going to show up at your house with a million dollar check. Well, there were people there who that's exactly what happened to them. And you know what every one of them said? There was not one person in the group that said that winning the lottery had improved the quality of their life. What was unanimous by everyone there was that it had lowered the quality of their life. Every one of them. Since winning the lottery, one lady put it this way. She said, yeah, it's good to have a lot of money now that I have to spend it on therapists. Because I've lost my husband, I've lost my friends, and I've lost my family. And life's not fun anymore. That's what all that wealth brought in. You know, interestingly enough, there was a magazine article this week about a new trend in America called disinheriting your children. And what that means is that many, many people who've earned wealth, they know the hard road to wealth and they have it, that many, and many of those people are now writing their children out of their inheritance giving their money to causes rather than their kids. And the reason for that is because there's so much data that has come in that kids who receive a large amount of wealth from their, from their parents without earning it are doomed to unhappiness. Doomed. Wealth is not a guarantee of happiness. Thirdly, beauty is not. They found that beauty doesn't make people happy. It makes them obsessed. That's what it does. And it makes them superficial, but it doesn't make them happy. Thrilling experiences don't make people happy. Skydiving, bungee jumping, riding whitewater rapids. The researchers found that gives thrills to life, momentary adrenaline highs. But you know what they found as they studied the people who do those kind of things? That it was usually to compensate for a bored and unhappy existence. Finally, personal accomplishments 
Don't make people happy. I thought it was interesting that featured on Stossel's program was a picture of Troy Aikman winning the Super Bowl. And it was an article that came out after that Super Bowl win and at the bottom with Troy Aikman holding up the football were the phrase listed by him to a reporter saying, is this all there is? It reminded me of a young man that I met years ago in college who had worked his whole life to be the NCAA wrestling champion, given his whole life to it. His senior year in his last match, he won it. He won it. He won it all. And he told me that the glory of that lasted about as long as it took to empty the gym. Personal accomplishments don't bring a deep happiness to life. So what does? What brings happiness? Well, the program answered that question. The research, the social studies, moderns, us moderns, we've done it. We finally got our hands on what makes people happy. Here are the five things they listed that make people happy. First, a vibrant religious faith. Secondly, a cause bigger than yourself to live for. Thirdly, control over your life. It's interesting that people who have a certain control over their life, they know why they're doing what they're doing. They're happy. That's why in communist countries, even when the wall was up, you'd go over there and everybody walked around in Poland and Yugoslavia and stuff bent like this. You could literally feel their despair. You know why? Because they had no control over their life. At the same time, you could go to Haiti in a most impoverished country, and those people were free. They didn't have much, but they were free. And you know what they were? They had big, bright smiles. And people who go down there to minister to them came back and would say, man, they just seem so happy. You know what? They are. That's what the studies say. They are happy. Because they have a certain sense of control. And the more control you have, happier you are. Third, fourthly, close friendships make people happy. Having somebody they can share their life with. And finally, marriage. Those are the five things. You can have one or all of those, but if you have some of those, it increases your sense of satisfaction in life. Now, what does the Scripture say? There's a New Testament pronouncement that I stumbled across this week and it just hit me as I was reading 1 Corinthians 13. At the end of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Now abide these three. So Paul is holding up kind of the crown jewels of life. Here's what he says. Now abides these three. Faith, hope, and love. There they are. He says, this is it. This is life. Now, I want you to look at those, and I want you to look at both sides of the screen. Do you see any correlation there? Because let me tell you, there's some real correlation. Look at the first two, a vibrant religious faith and a cause bigger than you to live for. What does that take? You know what that takes? That takes faith. Look at the next one, control over your life. You know what that is? That really is hope. Now you go, I don't make the connection with hope. Oh, there's a great connection. When, when we come to Christ, when people come into faith in Christ, they have hope in a God who's what? In control of all of life. He works all things after the counsel of His will, and He spins all those things together in a way that we can't imagine for what? The Scripture says in Romans 8.28, for good. And so, when a person comes to Christ, in a sense, they come into an even greater control of life because they're attached to a God who makes sense out of it all. That This isn't happening randomly. There's no real fate. It's a God moving this world and my life to a place that even when I get to death, people are going to be in this auditorium weeping over my body, but at the same time singing these great hymns of faith and rejoicing that I've gone on to another place. And even in death, I'm in control. And they're in control. 
But have you ever been to a place where people didn't believe that? It's awful. It's an awful place with no hope because I've totally lost control and I've lost control of this person I love so much forever. They're gone. So hope and control go together. And of course, the last two is obvious. Close friendships and marriage, what is that? That's love. Faith, hope, and love. What the Scriptures have known all along is life. We moderns are now figuring out at Stanford in the ivory tower. Now why do I say that? Because that's what Peter wants us to look at. He wants us to look at life. And last week, Dan Gerald introduced this epistle to us called 1 Peter. And in that, he compared our life to a tent. See that canvas over there? We're in this transitory state, passing through with this, this, this perishable shell that we wear that Paul in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 calls a tent because it's going to be torn down someday. It's not permanent. And yet, what's symbolic about that tent is not just its transitory nature. That tent also is symbolic of God's, now listen, intent. Because God has an intent with the tent. And that intent is that He desires in that shell, that transitory perishing shell, to radiate out of it at some point in time through your life, to radiate out of it His life and His strength and His mercy and His glory. That's the purpose of life. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We have this glory in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power of, that the power of God may be of Him and not ourselves. That's the way Paul says it. Now let's look at how Peter says it, starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. That's new life to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. See over there? You're a tent. That's what you are. You're a tent. And out of that tent, God intends to radiate new life. That's what He wants. New life out of you. So what is that life? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. Within these three little verses are four very powerful truths. And I want us to note those so we can understand what faith is before we go on and start fleshing it out. Let me give you the first one. The first is this. This new life begins with God's great mercy. Do you see it there in verse 3? Blessed be... He's in praise. He's alive with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His... Here's the key words. Great mercy. Not just mercy. Has caused us to be born again. This summer, my family and I were in Florida with some other families, and we had the opportunity to go to Universal Studios in Orlando. And it was one of those... Typical South Florida days where standing there was like standing under a blowtorch. That's how the sun felt. And you were in this park, this theme park that was crowded with tourists and other families and it's packed. 
and you were in those endless lines, you know, that go like this all the time, and you say hi to the same person about 78 times, uh, uh, feel like you're in this human blender, you know, this blender of humanity. And you're in the midst of that, and, and, and after a while it wears on you because you know you're spending so much time there just getting for this one brief moment of entertainment. And that's how it was that day. I mean, we started out and we spent probably 45 minutes standing in line to experience, you know, the Terminator entertainment. And then we left that and fought through the crowds and we went, you know, over to Jaws. My kids wanted to ride the Jaws ride, so we waited 50 minutes to get on this little boat to experience Jaws for one brief moment, except it broke down once we got out on the lake. <laughs> so we just kind of circled around out there. Then we left there and we went over and it was 55 minutes to get into the Back to the Future ride. And on it, and on it went, this kind of endurance test for us parents. And uh, we come to the end of the day, you know, started about 10 o'clock in the morning, now at 6, 6.30 at night. You know, you're, you're absolutely exhausted, you're near dehydration, but the kids have to go to ET. So we go up to ET. And we stand in line for a few minutes and we come up and you come up to one of these signs that say, 65 minutes from this point. Yeah, that's kind of how I felt. In fact, I started crying. I'm just, it was just spontaneous. I broke out in tears. I was just weeping there. I didn't think I could do it 65 minutes you know, to see E.T. So I'm standing there and I'm complaining and I, I said it just like that. I think I turned to Elizabeth and said, I can't believe we got to stand in line another 65 minutes. And just as I said that, there was this voice behind me. And here's what the voice said. Would you like to make that one minute? I turned around, I, I looked, and, and, and there standing by side, behind me was this young man with this official Universal Studios outfit on. He said, well, would you? And I thought, right. He said, <laughs> he, now this is a true story. This honestly happened. He said, he said, if you believe me, follow me. And he just left. So I said, kids, quick, let's go. <laughs> I, I had, to, you know, anything was better than this, you know? So we go and you know what we did? It was just so interesting. We were right behind him, and we walked past all these people standing there like droids, <laughs> waiting to get into E.T. And we go up to this, this wall, and he presses this button, and this little door opens, and we walk back, and we're back where all the employees are. And we walk through all the employees, and he's talking to people, and they're all kind of saluting him. I guess he was kind of official. And we go through it, and then we pop out in the front of the line. He walks us up to the cars, and he turns to me, and he says, you have a good day. And I got on that E.T. ride, and the whole time, I could care less about E.T. All I was thinking about was the great mercy. <laughs> really, the great mercy that had been bestowed on me for no reason by a stranger I didn't even know. And man, it felt good. It just brightened my whole day. For the rest of the day, I was just walking tall, feeling good. Life was good. The world was right. You know? Now, why do I say that? I say that because God's like that. God is the merciful attendant who every once in a while stands behind us and says, would you like something better than that? That's Him. I want you to know this. No one ever comes to God first. We're too proud to do that. We have other things to do, other places to go, 
other options to exercise. No one ever comes to God first. It's God who comes up to us unexpectedly in a moment and makes an appeal to us for a new life. And why does He do that? Not because of anything we've done. In fact, if we considered what we've done, He would have every right to walk away, not to come forward. But He does. He comes forward to us. Despite what we've done, despite the messes we've made, despite the lines that we're in, standing there hoping that when we get to the end of this one, we're going to find the real life. You see, most of us have had enough lines in theme park earth to last us for a lifetime. And we stand there shunning Him for these other things and He watches us stand in line to get to rides that eventually break down right in the middle. Or we get to the ride itself and we go through it and at the end we go, is that all it was? And finally we wear out and we get exhausted. And then on that moment, He comes to us. But not in anger. You hear this voice and it's a voice of mercy. Peter knew it all too well. He adds a little adjective, great mercy. That's what it is. And only God can offer that kind of life. Only God has access to that door that leads into the inner life that brings real life. Only God has that. But you have to turn to God to get it. You know, there are different moments in our church. We don't give a lot of invitations, but there's times for invitations. And I want you to know, this morning is not an accident. If this morning somehow you, in your heart, if at any place in this service, you feel kind of a movement in your heart that God's stirring you to make a deeper commitment or a new commitment, let me tell you something. That didn't come from you. You're being loved in that moment by a God who is merciful and who's stirring your heart to get something more than what you've got. And some of you are worn out in life because you're the nonconformist and you're not going to listen to the church. You're going to maybe attend here, but you're not going to You're going to do everything but really go deep with God and find that life. You like the messages, you like the entertainment, but you've got other things to do. Then there are most of us, and I say most of us because I think it's most of us, most of us who are conformist. We're not kind of the rebel, we're the conformer. And we do church like most Southerners do church. It's a social thing. And we want the best church that can provide the best show. But it's conformity, not transformity. And one of the things that kills our city and kills our churches and kills Christianity is churchianity. It's the embracing of the shell and the rhetoric and the words without the life. And some of you find, may find yourself there. You may find yourself your whole life. Grew up in a church. Mom and dad were Christians. You've assumed it. You know, and you're kind of doing your thing and you're managing that duplicitous way of life that has both. But the lines now are getting longer and it's getting tighter. Now I want you to know it's time to come home. It's time for a new life. But that new life has to be unashamedly committed publicly to Jesus Christ. If you can't do that, you're not worthy of the kingdom. You're not worthy of it. If you can't 
Love Jesus Christ more than father or mother or brothers or friends or image. You are not worthy to get the real life. So you'll keep playing church. That's why this message is so important. He's got great mercy for you today. I want you to look at secondly in verse 3, this new life unfolds around the living hope. It says, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why Peter is praising this life because it's not based on some new, unproven philosophy or idea or ideology that just keeps being spun to us every week through the media. You know, you can have new life through FinFin. You can have new life through communism. You can have new life through new age. It's all unproven hope. It's kind of I hope so way of life. Christianity is not a I hope so way of life. Christianity is based on a historical fact that we look back on. We know so. That's our hope. It's a no so. It's been demonstrated historically. It's not another scientific theory that they'll deny a year from now after you got some disease by taking that pill. It's a reality that has changed generation after generation after generation. Our hope is not a guess. Our hope is a living person. And when we have His life in us and we begin to really depend on it, seriously depend on it, when we go to Him for guidance and direction and our values and our choices and our comfort and our need for forgiveness, you know what we find in this hope? It never disappoints. And that's how we know we have a living hope. He fulfills what He says because He's alive through the resurrection of the dead. I want you to notice thirdly, verse 4, this new life comes with the guarantee of a future inheritance. Notice it says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That word reserved is really in what they call the perfect tense, which is the past tense. It's already been done. It could be translated this way, which has already been reserved in heaven for you. You know how when you call up, let's say you're calling, you're going to New York and you call up on the phone and you're making a hotel reservation and you, they ask you for the credit card and you give the credit card and then after you give your credit card, what do they give back to you? The confirmation number, right? You know, this is the great confirmation number verse in all the New Testament. It's, it's a guarantee for you that when I, when I take on this new life, that more comes with it than I can ever imagine. And it has already been reserved in heaven for me by embracing that life. And that means nothing for any reason with anything I could do, would it be taken away? That's why he gives those three descriptive phrases. Do you see them there? Look at them. It says imperishable. The word imperishable literally means it can't be torn up. You can't tear it up once you've been guaranteed it. Notice it says undefiled. It can't be corrupted by anything. Not even your sin. Finally, it can't fade away. It won't disappear. It's a guarantee. And if that sounds reassuring and assuring, it should be. Because that's the Gospel. It's good news for all of us. Now I know some of us might say, because of where we come from today, we might say about this, you know, that sounds great, but what if I fail God in that new life? What if I, what if I take that new life on and then fail? Or, or maybe, for most of us, what if it's, I've been failing God and I, I don't know if I can come back. It's kind of like, now that I'm in this, I'm not sure I can get out of it. 
Maybe that's your thoughts here today. I've fallen back in the old life. Well, I want you to notice the final characteristic in verse 5. It's this. This new life is being protected now by God from our failure. Not by you. It's being protected by God from your own failure. Notice verse 5. It says, who are protected. Actually, it's the present tense. Who are being protected right now by the power of God through faith for this salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. You know, really, if anyone knew about failure, it's the guy writing these very words. I mean, let's, let's take a look at Peter. I mean, the last thing we saw of Peter in the Gospels was he was out weeping with a cock crowing. That's where we found Peter. That's how he ended his Gospel experience, as a failure. A guy who denied Christ in his greatest time of need, the earthly Christ who he had been with for three years. And then when he was pressed to give an account whether he was in allegiance to Jesus Christ, not only did he defy that he was in allegiance, he cursed the person that asked him that question and cursed Christ and said, I never knew him. And yet, for, for Peter, you know what he found over time? Great mercy. That's what he found. An abundance of mercy is what he found. And the joy that Peter is expressing here is just that, that God's power is greater than any failure. The new life that He puts within me, even when I fail, can come back around and extinguish that failure if I'll just give Him my life back. So I want you to know this morning, don't let your failure keep you from God. Keep you from coming to God the first time or keep you from coming back to God another time. God understands your failures. That's what the cross was all about. That's what His shed blood was all about. It was for failure that Jesus Christ hung on the cross. And He didn't have to do it because He came out of that great mercy for you and for me. You know, this morning, I want you to understand all that He's expressing here, all this praise, all this joy, that Peter is giving us to kind of sample and taste for ourselves or use as a mirror back to ourselves, it's because what God is offering through Peter and through me this morning at the beginning of the series is a new life. And you've got to have the new life before you can go on and flesh out your faith. And some of us in this room have the life. But others of us in this room don't have it. Either because we've never had it or because we've left it and we need to come back. Let me ask it this way in light of really the, the passage this morning. Just some questions. If you think of your life, do you feel this morning, do you feel separated from God? Do you feel that uh, you have hope here this morning? When you think of your life, do you see it that life is going to be different for me and fresh and alive? Or is it going to just stay the same? Do you feel things can change? Or do you feel paralyzed in your condition? Do you feel a hope in death? Or do you feel a fear? Do you feel burdened with guilt here this morning? That's not life. Do you feel tired of churchianity? Do you feel like church is just in a rut for you? That coming in here and singing these songs, they, they become after a while boring because, because there's no connection to a heart? Does, for you, just think of this, for you, does going on and living your life as it is right now, just doing more of the same, is that exciting for you? 
Does that excite you or discourage you? Do you need a new life? You know, the closest my dad ever got to a spiritual language was when he would get frustrated in the yard or something would happen in the house and I would just hear him say kind of in anger, God have mercy. It's kind of one of his little phrases. And I don't know where he inherited that, but every once in a while, he'd just say, God have mercy. But I want you to know, that's about as close as he ever got to it. But God does have mercy. He's got a great amount of mercy. He wants to offer it to you. And He wants to offer it to you today. But I want you to know that you must literally give your life away to receive His. You know? You must take a life-giving step of faith. And when I say life-giving step of faith, please hear me. It's not just idly placing your faith. It's looking at your life and the lines that you're in and saying, I don't know. I'm going to give this away. I'm going to take the ultimate risk. I'm going to do just like the Lewis's. I'm going to follow right now a voice that I'm not sure of that tells me He will take me where I really want to be. And that takes faith. But to follow, you've got to leave the line. You've got to leave the rut. You've got to leave the old way of doing things. And by faith, believe that God can give you this new life. If we're going to flesh out our faith, you've got to have a faith. Do you feel the mercy of God moving you this morning? I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up on stage and play. We're going to play for a moment. But here's what I want to offer you. This morning, I'm going to ask you where you are to think about that. And if you feel that God is moving you in some way to come forward to say, I need to come back. Or maybe, I need this life that you're talking about. Then I want you to feel the freedom. Because we're a family here. We share transparent things here like Teresa was sharing. I want you to come. We, I'm going to be here and I'll talk with you. We'll end the service and let people go. We can stay and pray together. But let me tell you, you have to take that step. You have to take that step. You have to move away from what people might think to this place. What does God think? What does God want? So I'm going to ask you, you know, as a family, if wherever you are, if you have a need, you need to make a re recommitment, a fresh commitment to Jesus Christ, or maybe we're talking about a life that you've never experienced, then you come. You come in these moments. Don't worry about the rest around you. You come as the band plays. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.